Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. Uh, I want to mention that this episode uh, is dealing with sexual assault and rape. And so if that is something uh, that maybe is a trigger for you or um, is, is something that brings up stuff and you're not comfortable listening, I just want to give you the heads up ahead of time so that you can make that decision whether or not you want to listen. Um, I sat down with Sarah Orton and Cameron Clark from the Sexual Assault Center here in Nashville. Sarah is a advocacy service coordinator uh, of the Victims Advocates. Um, and Cameron is the, she coordinates the clinical training program at the SAC. And just to note, they are also seeking volunteers at the SAC. And we talk about that in the podcast. So, um, yeah, that's an important thing to note if you're here in Nashville. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. It seemed very appropriate to have this conversation and post this episode uh, considering that. Um, really quickly, sacenter.org is the website for the Sexual Assault Center. Um, their number is 1-800-879-1999. I encourage any of you who need help or know someone that needs help to contact them uh, here in the state of Tennessee and Nashville. Um, nationally, uh, you can always reach out to RAIN, R-A-I-N-N.org, which is Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network. Their number toll-free is 800 656 4673. So that's 800-656-HOPE. Um, so yeah, that's those are important phone numbers. Um, this topic is 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 very important to me to get these conversations out into the world. Um, they're not necessarily comfortable conversations, but that's the way it is. Um, still really important to have the conversation. In Tennessee, um, so, for example, if somebody is impregnated by a rapist, um, in Tennessee, the parental rights of the rapist are terminated, but only if there's a conviction. Every state, it's different from state to state. I want to bring that up because um, can you imagine if you are raped and uh, you get imp- and you get pregnant and you decide to keep the baby for whatever reason, um, and if your rapist isn't convicted of a of the crime of rape, that they have say-so in raising the child. They have parental rights. In Tennessee, um, that's the case where if the conviction of rape doesn't stand, they get to have parental rights. Every state is different. In some states, it doesn't even matter that even if there is a conviction, they have parental rights. So um, I encourage you to check out what the laws are in your state and be an advocate uh, for survivors, uh, because Lord knows it's needed. One in six men will experience some sort of um, sexual violence in their lifetime. It's not just a woman problem. 63% of sexual assaults are not reported to police. More than 90% of sexual assault victims on college campuses do not report the assault. One in five women will be raped at some point in their lives. And understand, this is just statistics that are reported. So imagine what isn't reported. One in 71 men will be raped at some point in their lives. Um, $122,461 is the lifetime cost of rape per victim. $127 billion is the amount of money rape costs the U.S. annually. 
51.1% of female rape victims reported being raped by an intimate partner. So guess what? Not just people you don't know. In fact, statistically, you're more likely to be assaulted by someone you know. And in a domestic situation, it's still rape, okay? And it's still sexual assault. So 40.8% um, of female rape victims reported being raped by an acquaintance. In 8 out of 10 cases of rape, the victim knew the perpetrator. And 8% of rape victims, um, I'm sorry, 8% of rapes occurred while the victim was at work. Uh, some pretty heavy-duty numbers. This, again, this episode was really important to me uh, as a woman, as a human. Um, and for some of you with kids and stuff, I just, I think it's such an important conversation to have. Um, one of the things mentioned to me by these lovely women who took the time to talk with me was that, and this was off air, but we talked about it, that they have had um, people come in who have had situations where the parents never even talked to the kids about sex and their first sexual experience was that of abuse, of rape and or um, assault. And I just, you know, everyone raises their kids the way they see fit, but I, I just, I can't stress this enough that knowledge is power and it's knowing that your body is worthwhile and belongs to you and not anyone else is so important for kids um, to grow up into healthy adults, to understand boundaries and such. Um, I just, you know, that's my personal opinion and many of you may not agree with me. Some of you may, I don't know. Um, it's just, it was important for me to get that out there. So I hope you listen to this episode um, again, if you or anyone you know is in need of help and assistance, um, please contact either Rain or if you're here in Tennessee, the Sexual Assault Center here in Nashville. Um, and uh, let's help let's help the world be a better place um, and a safer place for women and men. The usual stuff seems weird to talk about, but again. Um, the support of Hey Human comes from things like Amazon Affiliate Program. If you use the portal on the heyhumanpodcast.com website, it, it does help support Hey Human. It helps keep it ad-free. Um, you can email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. And please remember the links page on the official website. It's chock full of great references, books, movies, um, just stuff. So I encourage you all to check out the links page. Um, thanks for listening and, um, yeah, thanks for, thanks for your support of Hey Human and helping to keep this show going. All right, here we go. Hi, Cameron. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for being on. I got that right, right? I didn't back, get that backwards. No, you got okay, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Cameron. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Hey Human. Um, Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we're happy yeah. to be here. Yeah, so y'all are from the, the Sexual Assault Center in Nashville. Which Correct. I imagine that's a pretty intense place to work and a beautiful place to work and all the things in between. Mm -hmm. um, let's just start with a little background. How did you guys get involved with it? Sure. You want to go first? Sure. <laughs> um, this is Cameron now. Yeah, hi. I... Um, 
I moved to Nashville several years ago to go to grad school. I've mm. been a yoga teacher for years and years and years. Um, and the more I was working therapeutically with people, um, the more I was like, I need to go and do and learn more. So I went to grad school um, and moved down here to finish and did one of my internships actually at the Sexual Assault Center. Okay. Um, a clinical internship. Um, and then was brought on board as a therapist um, and have been there ever since. And now I work as the um, training coordinator. So I coordinate our clinical training program that we have there. Okay, and Sarah? So um, I moved to Nashville a year and some change ago. I'm originally from the San Francisco Bay Area. So I started doing this work several years ago out there, um, doing prevention education work. Um, and then the agency that I was working with um, got some funding for a full-time advocate position. So I became a victim advocate with them and worked doing that for a couple of years, then moved to Nashville and had already been looking um, at the Sexual Assault Center before I moved out here and was like, where will I work? And I was like, I will work there. So <laughs> <laughs> made so, a position. <laughs> yeah, I did. So I um, just kind of waited until there was an opening and then mm -hmm. there was an advocate opening there. I applied and um, not terribly long after that, I guess just a few months ago, um, became the advocate services coordinator. So I'm kind of in a transitionary period right now. I'm moving out of direct service work, um, similar to what Cameron did mm -hmm. before. And so now I'm overseeing all of the direct service advocates. So what does that mean to be an advocate? So um, I always get this question. I feel like after all these years, I would have like a really great succinct answer, but there's just not one. Um, essentially what we do is we help folks who are going through the criminal justice system. Um, advocacy work in general is just kind of the admission that systems aren't always friendly places for victims of sexual violence. So we exist to sort of help guide people on that journey, whatever that means to them or for them. So oftentimes that will be helping folks um, file re police reports, helping folks anticipate next steps if they are going through the criminal justice process. Um, sometimes it will be just really basic crisis intervention, stabilization stuff. Um, we're often the first point of contact or receiving first disclosure. Mm -hmm. If somebody comes to the center um, and we have a walk-in and someone's showing up or calling saying, this just happened to me and I don't know what to so do. So sometimes they go to you before they even go to the police? Often, yeah. Yeah, it mm -hmm. probably feels safer, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and a lot of people are referred to us through the police or through getting um, a forensic exam done or, or things like that. So there's there's a plethora of ways that we can come into contact with somebody. <clears throat> but Okay, and what about you, Cameron? What What is your day-to-day -day like there? So we, um, the training team there, we're kind of, our role is to help build the capacity of um, the community to respond in a trauma-informed manner mm. to survivors. So we work with um, healthcare professionals, we work with law enforcement, we work with community mental health organizations, we work with dual domestic and sexual violence shelters. Um, and our goal is to help them understand um, what a trauma response looks like in a person. How does trauma impact the way somebody lives their life and how does it change your worldview and then how do we in whatever role we have um, respond in a way that's supportive and helpful to that survivor so that mm -hmm. we're part of their healing journey instead of um you know 
causing additional pain or re-victimization or anything like that. Um, and so we kind of lead with information and start with believing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Start with believing. I like that. Mm -hmm. That's a great, uh, is that your, is that your tag? Or, you know, your <laughs> no, not <laughs> official like tag. Yeah. I wish I had come up with that. It's not mine. It's really um, wonderful. Yeah, the End Violence Against Women International kind of has this campaign that's the Start by Believing campaign. Um, and that language has just kind of stuck with us. And it brings up something, we... an interesting question because I know that there's that uh, rhetoric out there of, well, if, if some people say they were raped when they wouldn't, when they weren't, then, then you know, what does that mean for everybody else? And mm -hmm. then it makes people not believe. And I, my response is generally that, Look, there may be one or two people that are like that, but in general, the, the numbers are so overwhelming. The statistics for uh, sexual violence. Mm -hmm. How do you combat that rhetoric? Something that I always think about, something that I find interesting, is that we don't apply that really to any other crime. If somebody says that they were a victim of a robbery, we don't we're not worried in the same way that somebody's making up that, that they've been robbed to, to target somebody else. And same things with other violent or nonviolent crimes, right? Um, so that's something that's kind of strange. I also really, when people are kind of starting in on that rhetoric, I mean, there is that, you kind of named this just a second ago, but there is that FBI study um, that came out a few years ago that showed that out of everyone who reported um, a sex crime, they found that essentially that 98% of folks were telling the truth. So they found that 2% of individuals had recanted or that they had, during their investigation, um, discovered that somebody hadn't been telling the truth. Yeah. And that stat is actually a lot higher than other individuals who are victims of crime. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just really fascinating that we kind of assign this it. questioning mm -hmm. to, to victims of sexual violence mm -hmm. in well, particular. 98% versus 2%, I think I would go with the 98%. And yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting what people choose to focus on. Mm -hmm. I know there are a lot of mythologies surrounding sexual assault. So there's the mythology that men can't be raped or the mythology that um, rape doesn't happen or even sexual assault doesn't happen within the context of a committed relationship or a domestic partnership or a marriage. And um, I know that to be untrue because mm -hmm. I have friends who have suffered from those things, mm -hmm. you know, are survivors of those incidents. Um, I, I'm especially the, the whole marriage consent thing. I mean, I think anytime you, you have a relationship if somebody, let's say you're in the throes of passion and at some point somebody says, you know what, I was really into this for a second and now I'm not. Mm -hmm. And that if it then gets pursued in a manner against the wishes of both parties, mm -hmm. that's an assault to me. Mm -hmm. And I know so I don't, I can't speak for men because I'm not a man, but I know for myself, uh, there's a lot of pressure to feel like you have to do things, especially when you're younger that if you don't, you'll be like, oh, you're a prude or you're this, that. I think all of this sort of falls into this realm mm -hmm. of, of um, not okayness, <laughs> yeah. you know, but most especially, I think uh, that idea of, of consent, if consent stops, then you stop, period. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, I want to talk about the mythologies of all those things. Yeah. So consent is an important part of that. And I think we don't talk about 
what healthy consent looks like. It is ongoing, it's enthusiastic, but it's not always verbal. Um, and so looking at the different ways in the context of relationships or the context of sexual encounters, what kind of body language are you receiving from the person that you're you know, being intimate with and how can you read that language um, and check in? And I think it does a lot in a lot of ways come back to communication mm. um, and even a little bit back to education about how do we learn to identify uh, what we, how we view pleasure and how do we ask for what we need and let people know what we don't want um, and let that be a normal, healthy, safe conversation to have. Um, and I think that starts, again, like I said, early on in education mm-hmm. and teaching our kids what it looks like to be assertive um, in all areas of their life, not just in terms of their sexual development, but <clears throat> in the world in which they exist. Yeah. Is it hard to get men to come forward if they've been, especially if they've been raped by women? I imagine it's mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. a lot of stigma mm-hmm. around that, and then the thing, well, how can a guy have sex if he's not turned on? I'm mm-hmm. Like, well, the body functions of its own accord a lot. Yeah. yeah. So the body can be aroused without um, the mind. Know, without the mind, yeah, absolutely. And without consent. And without consent, and that's a, a thing that we hear a lot of times is you know, people will start to question whether or not it was rape or not, whether or not they did want it or not because of the way that their body responds. And, you know, a penis will get erect if it's rubbed or touched in certain ways and a vagina will lubricate itself. Um, Mm -hmm. And the purpose of that is to help, you know, make an act that's natural and biological, pleasurable and safe. Um, But, you know, it doesn't always align with consent and what people want. So when somebody comes into the center, what's the first steps? How do you, I imagine in those moments you guys see people at, they're most vulnerable and terrified. So how do you, how do you deal with that? For me, that's a, that's a little complicated to give like a super concise answer to because people do come into the center ultimately in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot about our accompaniment program, so meeting folks that way. Um, So I'll talk about that just really briefly. So part of what our advocacy team does is every time somebody goes to receive a forensic exam, also known as a rape kit, in Davidson County, um, currently that person goes to Nashville General Hospital. So they go to the emergency department there, and um, the nurse who is on call or on staff there will call one of our advocates, so whoever is on call. We do have a large volunteer program, so a lot of times it'll be a volunteer or one of our staff advocates. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll send somebody out and that person will provide support for them and again, really helping anticipate next steps and stuff like that as that person is making their law enforcement report if that's something that they're choosing to do. Um, and getting their forensic exam done if that's something that they're ultimately choosing to do as well. So for our team in particular, which is obviously my lens, we are meeting a lot of folks for the first time that way. Um, What happens then is if the survivor then consents to having follow-up, one of our advocates will follow up in the next couple of days um, to see if they want to come into the center, what their needs are, and and that sort of thing. Um, Because we do offer advocacy and counseling, I think that we tend to focus a lot on the needs assessment portion of things. Mm-hmm. So whether that's somebody um, that we're meeting at the hospital or somebody who's a walk-in into our center or somebody who's calling for the first time, um, really a lot of it is validating and affirming what they 
have experienced. So just as Cameron said, start with believing and then trying to get an overall picture of what that individual is needing and what they're seeking. Sometimes it's to file a police report. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's to seek counseling. Sometimes it's not. Um, so we really want to be informed by, by what they're telling us that they need. Yeah. Do you encourage um, people to go to the police or do you let them just, it's all on them? And what if you, you encounter a couple different people and you think, oh my gosh, we've got a serial rapist on our hands and they don't want to report. I mean, how do you deal with all that stuff? So that's a two-parter. So one, we never encourage anybody to report or not. Um, our sole purpose is to make sure that folks have the information to make the decision that's right for them. Mm -hmm. um, we, we're we not qualified to make that decision. Nobody is. Right. Um, so we don't ever encourage anyone one way or the other. In terms of the you know, if you get a couple of cases where it sounds similar and you start to kind of let yourself catastrophize in that way and think like, maybe this is a serial rapist, maybe this person is going to offend again. Um, I don't know how you feel, but for me, that's something that I just kind of learned to sit with a really long time ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's uncomfortable mm -hmm. for sure, um, especially when you have cases of intimate partner violence and, and things like that. Mm you and you watch somebody return to their abusive partner after going through all of this and doing all of this work it's incredibly difficult and it happens a lot a lot a lot right yeah, yeah. yeah it does um but people are expert in their own experiences right right and if you know anything about domestic violence for example we know and survivors of dv know that the most dangerous time to leave the most the time that you're most likely to get killed essentially is when you're trying to leave. Mm -hmm. So there's just all this stuff that's going on for folks and we can't we can't claim to know or understand what all of it sure. is. Sure. It's our goal to be <clears throat> a part of their process um, in deciding and finding a way to incorporate choice back into their life. So what happens when someone does experience a traumatic event like a sexual yeah. assault is all choice is stripped from them. So sexual assault it can kind of be categorized as an inescapable attack where no matter what I choose to do, the likelihood that it will get worse is high. So my ability to make a sound decision to keep myself safe, kind of um, our ability to make that choice kind of goes offline and we just respond in whatever way our body does in order to help keep us alive. Mm -hmm. And so part of the therapeutic process, whether you're an advocate or a counselor, is to help people find ways to begin to make choices again in their life. And part of that is, what is, what is my choice? What do I want to do in terms of moving through the criminal justice system? Do I want to? Do I not? Do I want to report or do I not? Do mm -hmm. I, you know, how do I want to share my story? How do I want my healing journey to look? And that's a choice that we support all survivors in. Um, there's no right or wrong way to heal from this kind of thing. Sure. So it's, we really encourage people to just be with themselves and begin to befriend themselves again and trust their bodies again and we just want to see people healing right what about when children come in do you then is it a whole different ball game in that case yeah so everybody in the state of tennessee is a mandated reporter if they are if they come across information that they know a child is being abused or neglected um and so there are processes that are in place um, where reports are made and follow-through uh, happens. I actually never <laughs> really worked with kids, um, so I don't know too, too much, to be honest with you, about what that whole process yeah. looks like. Yeah. Um, but there are processes in place that help to keep kids safe. Um, yeah. Yeah. And also, if we're talking about 
little kids for sure that, but also mm-hmm. um, we can see minors who are 16 and older. They can essentially sign their own paperwork mm-hmm. and they can consent to advocate services or um, therapy services. In this state? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, without mm-hmm. their um, parents' permission or consent. That still means that we would have to file a report because that person is a minor, mm-hmm. um, but we wouldn't necessarily, we absolutely would not need to contact that individual's parents mm-hmm. um, if they were wanting to do that privately. And I assume that's not true of every state. It's probably different state to state. That is, is that a federal governing or is that? It's not federal, no. Um, that's our agency policy. I'm not even sure what the... Well, it's consenting to medical treatment in Tennessee, also 16. Mm-hmm. I think it is. Mm-hmm. It's, it can be a little bit confusing for teens of that age because they have, you know, they have this autonomy and the ability to make these really big decisions about their life. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> there are these policies that are in place because they're still technically minors. And so, sure. so it's, it can be a little bit challenging, but, um, and also super empowering for them. So, yeah. You had mentioned rape kits, and uh, I had I'd done some a little bit of research about that, and it's my understanding that, for example, in Tennessee alone, the backlog on, on rape kits is in the thousands, and nationwide it's in the maybe tens of thousands. Um, why? <laughs> um, Can you even answer that um, from your position? A little bit, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it, that's something, again, is as you just pointed out, that's really going to vary state Mm -hmm. to state. Um, So I can speak to Davidson County a little bit. Uh, What is true here, which I don't know um, how familiar you are with like what was going on in Detroit and things like that when the backlog was like 11,000 and police were destroying kits and and things like that. Oh, Um, I'm going to look into it now. Yeah. So so that was a thing that happened. That is not what is happening in Davidson County. Um, I have to say to Nashville's credit, Mm -hmm. really the issue is that um, there are, the crime labs are understaffed. And so it takes quite some time to be able to process a rape kit and do everything that that entails. I will not even try to explain the science of it, um, but it takes a while. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really just that. It's an understaffing issue. Mm-hmm. Um, what does vary state by state that I think is important to understand, which most, most folks don't, is that who decides if a rape kit is going to happen and who decides what is ultimately going to happen with that rape kit is different. So I will explain. So in, <laughs> so in California, for example, even though you can report anonymously, the police are making this, the decision. They have to approve every rape kit that happens because the police department pays for it in the state of California. Um, so let's say if a Jane Doe comes into the hospital and says that they want to get a forensic exam done, but they don't want to make a police report, at least not yet, um, the person administering the forensic exam will call the local law enforcement and say, hey, we have a Jane Doe here. Here are some very big, vague details about what's going on. And um, law enforcement will ultimately approve it or not, depending. That is not the case in Tennessee. Um, the Criminal Injuries Compensation Program is who approves kits in the state of Tennessee, and they reimburse um, all rape kits that happen. So no expenses ever incurred by the victim by the survivor, which is great. Um, so you're not having the same level of police involvement with the kits here that you might be having in other states. It seems very bizarre to me that the police are the ones that are paying for the rape kits. It is, yeah. It seems like a, a, a governmental should be providing, mm-hmm. especially since rape is a, I would consider it a national crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, bless. 
So that's kind of saying all of that to say that it varies so much from state to state because how the kits are handled um, is just quite different. So some states have, or some, it even varies so much, I think, city by city and county by county. So some states, some counties have a terrible backlog and some places don't have a terrible backlog. And the reasons are very different. Um, And I encourage listeners um, to donate to endthebacklog.org, please. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You you said Jane Doe, and it made me think of something else. Um, Is it harder for sex workers to report violent crimes um, in this regard? Because I think... If a sex worker comes in and says, I've been raped, people were like, yeah, mm-hmm. sure you were, you know, which is, which is so sad that why is one person's vagina valued higher than another or their body or whatever? How, I mean, does the protocol shift or is it just a straight across? Because you know that they're going to need almost more protection or more help, more advocacy to be heard and to be believed. Yeah. You know, how do you deal with that? Like you just said, what we do know for sure is that more the more that a community is marginalized and pushed underground, the more at risk that individual is um, of being victim of a violent crime, especially of sexual assault. So that is true of... So you mean minorities and then... Yes. Sex, mm-hmm. yeah, like, sex yeah. workers, people who are falling under the LGBTQIA umbrella. Absolutely. Um, Runaway all mar- kids. All mm-hmm. that, yeah. 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 I mean, kids in general, youth yeah. in general. Um, sure folks who are elderly as well. It's, I mean, oh, yeah. just anybody who's kind of on on those margins, mm-hmm. right? Um, for sex workers, it is particularly difficult because they are essentially, in the eyes of the law, committing a crime um, whilst being victimized. And so that's really complicated for a lot of folks mm-hmm. to understand. And you're absolutely right. It's folks aren't wanting to come forward because mm-hmm. they feel often rightly so, like they're not going to be believed that... Um, the crime that was committed against them is not going to be valued or taken seriously Mm -hmm. in the same way as somebody who was not engaging in sex work. Um, The other side of that coin, I think, too, where where waters can get kind of muddy is that we're talking about, I assume we're talking right now about consensual sex work and not human trafficking. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes, big, big, big difference. difference. Um, Again, going back to consent, (laughs) right? Yeah, Yeah, huge difference between human trafficking and and sex workers who are doing it of their own volition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there are all kinds of services that exist for folks who are being trafficked or who are identifying themselves as being victimized by sexual exploitation. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you know, government officials and and service providers aren't able to put that into them, aren't able to put them into that victim category, then then it doesn't make sense to them. Um, Do you have anything to add to that? That's kind of my sex. Well, I think you're bringing up a really important part about language. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you said like the victim category. And I think it's important to remember that no matter what background people are coming from, no matter what gender or what you know, maybe marginalized group they find themselves um, falling into. Unfortunately, everybody who comes forward has a right to be believed and a right to heal. And so for us at the center, um, you know, I think we can speak broadly about what's happening as an issue in our community. Mm -hmm. But at the center, we don't, we're not looking to try and investigate whether or not you're telling the truth or whether or not you're 
life choices are right or wrong. We mm-hmm. just want to help be a part of your healing journey. And mm-hmm. so um, walking through those doors, that's our main goal. Yeah. We want to hear about what your experience was like and how we can help you heal and recover from that. We also do some some outreach work and stuff mm-hmm. uh, with that population, um, mm-hmm. particularly sex workers who have been um, cited for, you know, on prostitution charges and, sure. and things mm-hmm. like that. And something that we always say when doing that outreach and working with, um, that population is that our services are <clears throat> totally unconditional. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing sex work and you want to keep doing sex work, that's fine. Mm-hmm. You can be in counseling, you can be in therapy and continue to do sex work. Mm-hmm. Not a problem. If you are using drugs or substances, um, you know, as long as you're able to kind of be present enough to do the work, um, being clean and sober isn't necessarily conditional of, of seeking our services mm-hmm. either. So, I mean, I think that that's what I would stress the mo- most for, for folks. How do you to get out of the way intellectually and in your hearts, you know, because I think to, to take on a role like you've taken on, it requires an immense amount of empathy, mm-hmm. first of all. So how... I mean, do you go home at night and just scream at the wall, or what? Do you, how do you? Used to. <laughs> yeah, this is Cam. This is like Cameron's thing. Take it away. We, um, I mean, we are really working hard to help build the capacity of caregivers to help take care of themselves. Um, Burnout, vicarious trauma, um, empathic distress, compassion fatigue, all of these terms we hear kind of recycled in the community all the time, um, using using them to explain what it's like when we start to feel as others. Um, and our systems, our nervous systems are set up to receive feedback from one another at all times. So, you know, when I'm sitting listening to someone share a painful story, I begin to feel that pain inside of my body. And so it's learning how do we set those energetic boundaries or learn how to set um, empathic, be empathic without joining and meshing with people. And I think what's, what's important to remember when we're doing this work is that giving people the opportunity to experience the sensation of healing Mm is the most healing thing that you can give to somebody. When everything has been taken from them, right? Your ability to make choices, your ability to feel like you're in control of your body, to feel safe in the context of relationships, when all of those things are ripped from you, we want to help give people that back and let them experience that feeling of healing. Um, and so if if we kind of come into this and we, we get overly invested and say, give me your pain, I want to take it from you, we're taking one more thing from them and that's their opportunity to experience recovery. Mm-hmm. And in the feeling of that, you know, somatic feeling of recovery, that's where healing starts to really pick up and start running. And that's the healing snowball that we want to see is this feels good. I'm going to keep doing this because I want to take my life back instead of let me give this to you because I don't want to deal with it. I'm going to avoid it. So I'm going to throw it on my therapist or I'm going to throw it on my advocate. Um, and that's where you know, things can get really tough. Um, but it's, it's real. It's really hard. Vicarious trauma then is Mm -hmm. just what it sounds like that Mm -hmm. somebody's telling me they're what's happened to them. And then my body starts to react Mm -hmm. in in kind. Yeah. 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 
I mean, you know, you see it when you're driving down the highway and there's a car wreck. Everybody slows down and turns around to see what happened, right? Because we care. As human beings, we're yeah. built for connection. And when we see people experiencing pain and suffering, we can't help but want to help. Um, and so who's helping to take care of the people who are helping the people who that's are in really pain? That's a really good question. Um, and, and that's a big thing that we're work, working on in, in my little lovely team that I have um, is how do we how do we make that a norm and how do we make the meeting of basic needs of our caregivers and our therapists and our advocates something that's a priority along with providing services to clients right, because I it know. really is a parallel process do they go to therapy as well a lot of therapists do go to therapy. Yeah, um, I, would imagine I mean, I, I I advocate for therapy all day long. I think yeah. it's a great thing. I'm a huge believer <laughs> yeah. in therapy. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, for sure. And it's it's a lot about community and connection. You know, that's one of the first things we go to when we're experiencing pain is we want to call somebody that we trust and say this thing happened and you know I need to talk yeah. or I need some support. And so, how do we create that kind of connection inside of our communities? Um, <clears throat> How do you feel the Me Too movement has um, has it changed anything around there, um, or is it business as usual? Because for most women I know, we all went, yeah, no duh, yeah. <laughs> and then you just keep moving. Because if I if I sat down and made a list of every experience I've had that was unwanted or across you know mm-hmm. crossing the line or whatever, um, it's a very long list, and mm-hmm. I feel that most women I know. And my list begins at a very young age, you know, at the, from, you know, a friend of my parents when we went visiting in California and the son who was, you know, I was like six and the son's like, oh, come, come into my room. I want to read you some stuff. And I went into his room and it was just porn mags everywhere. And he's like, sit down on the bed. Let me show you these pictures. That's not okay. Mm-mm. You know, so it's like you think about these weird little moments in your life Mm-hmm. <laughs> and all of my girlfriends have experienced these things and we all have a level of whatever that can handle it or not handle it um i know i just sort of went off the rail on that but how does how does this movement how has it served you guys or has it big feelings i think yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's big yeah. Feelings. yeah. the me too movement is really it's big yeah. um and it touches a lot of different things. I think kind of going back to what I was saying before, it has created a, um, a sense of community and um, a space where where women can say, you know, me too to each other and know that it's a safe space and, and, and I can come forward and share these stories and say these things. And I have, you know, whether I'm doing it on social media or I'm saying it in in person or I'm sharing it with people who, you know, I really want to witness this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the support of an entire country and entire community of women who are behind you and men, some men, right? Sure. Who are all behind us saying, yeah, me too, we have your back. Um, and I think that's really important in helping to shift the conversation um, away from, you know, what's wrong with you to what happened to you and help me understand how I can be better and uh, more supportive and on your team. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that there has been, well, it's great, obviously, and I can totally echo everything that Cameron said. I think that there has been you know, some frustration among um, providers and, and even clients of ours who are sort of like, this has been happening for 
Ever? Forever and ages and ages and ages. It's not new. Yeah, it's not new. And acting like this is now just becoming a problem, Mm -hmm. which oftentimes is kind of the way that it's framed, can feel not great to folks who Mm -hmm. have kind of witnessed this Mm -hmm. going on for, I mean, even centuries, really. So, So that part of it, I guess, can can feel complicated um, where you really want to support and say, this is so great. But at the same time, like, yeah, duh, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. um, everybody has their story or a thousand little stories. Sure. So Mm -hmm. that's just something that, that sits with me thinking about it. And I will say logistically, we have had, um, I think right when everything was kind of coming out and and gaining momentum, um, I think that we saw a, a small increase in, in folks coming in and wanting to to make reports and things like that. Um, I remember I had just a small handful of people over a couple of weeks come in and say, you know, this happened to me a year ago or two years ago. Mm-hmm. I know that prosecution-wise it's not going to go anywhere, but, like, I do want to make a matter of records report and named me too as the reason for them coming forward and mm-hmm. saying, you know, I, I didn't realize that this was such an epidemic and... I want to make this report, even though I know that my case isn't going to go anywhere, at least this will be on paper in case somebody else decides to come forward. And okay. and uh, feeling this kind of, I guess, connection and um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Solidarity. O- obligation. <laughs> oh, almost, obligation. Um, yeah. to, to other survivors of sexual violence wow, yeah. as well, mm-hmm. um, which was pretty cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Owing it to your sister's. Yeah, brothers totally. to, mm-hmm. to say I'm going to make this report because I want you to be safe too and maybe I don't even know yeah. who you are yeah. do they even really have good numbers on the, the male population that is dealing with sexual assault because um, I know that like all of us when we talk about it the first thing that pops in our brains is women mm-hmm. and of course you know uh, transgender people mm-hmm. are sexually assaulted at an extraordinary rate mm-hmm. um, uh, again, runaways are mm-hmm. plucked and taken to sex trafficking, um, things like that. But is it harder to get the data on on men just because of, a the stigma and? So I think I think this the stats off the top of my head. I actually printed off a little stat sheet and then I left it in my truck far far away from here. But um, <laughs> off the top of my head, I think that the statistics are um, is that one in three sorry, not one in three, one in six um, boys will be sexually assaulted before they turn 18. And then after 18, one in 33 um, straight identifying men, straight identifying cis men will be assaulted. Um, So comparing the one in 33 to the one in four women, which is the current statistic that gets used a lot. Still too many on either side. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, And these numbers are... You know, reported. The numbers are reported. And yeah. so what we know, especially with men, is that they're significantly less likely to come forward of course. and disclose. So sure. we don't really actually... So do a lot of women, don't want to... Sure, I mean, right. Sure. So we don't really have... I mean, if the numbers are that high, imagine, imagine how it... much higher they would be um, if we really knew how mm-hmm. much was happening. Why? Why is it happening? What is the deal? That's what really is the deal? And, and also, <laughs> like, what is the deal with the fact that uh, there's a statute of limitations? That's super frustrating. Um, I know I don't think it's that way for children. Like, if you're a child and then you grow up and you say, "Oh my gosh, now I've remembered this," then there's wiggle room. But for an adult, let's say for six years you decide, "I'm just not ready to come forward or talk about this," and then you do, you really, the law doesn't isn't doesn't have your back. It feels like. Mm-hmm. 
you can come forward and say, uh, you know, murdered somebody 30 years later or whatever. You know, I don't get that. Why? Tell me why. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's a lot of whys there. There Which are a lot of whys. Why, 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 why? I think, and Cameron, you touched on this a little bit earlier in terms of why does sexual assault happen? And maybe this is just because I started all of this work um, doing prevention, but I really just to my core feel that it has to do with education. It has to do with the norms that we have that exist around rape culture, sex and sexuality exactly in our society. Mm -hmm. I remember teaching um, prevention education classes to high school students and talking about consent and how to ask for consent and things like that. And uh, so many of the students saying like, well, that just doesn't feel natural and it's awkward and I want it to feel natural. and my, my adult friends will say the same stuff same, to me, yeah, too. Yeah. Um, and I always say the same thing. If you're if you're old enough to have sex, you're old enough to have this conversation. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, have it. Mm-hmm. But the conversations <laughs> never get easier. Yeah. Well, and it can be awkward and uncomfortable, yeah. even for, for those of us so who... it's so empowering yeah. to say, look, yeah. this is my body, and this is what feels good to me, and this is where it's, you know, what I've experienced, or this is where I've been, or this is my, you know if I have an STD or not, or this is this or that or whatever, all that stuff is so valuable. But mm-hmm. we live in a society that, first of all, is so detached from our vulnerability mm-hmm. and certainly detached from communication. But also there's that pervasive thing that women, girls, I, I have, I've dated guys with young daughters and stuff and junior high school or whatever. And, uh, I asked them, like, what's going on? What's this sexual climate? You know, maybe that's inappropriate. I don't think it is. I always ask permission from the parent, from the from the boyfriend first, but um, just to get a feel for what's going on. And many of the girls that I have talked to and their friends and such have responded, well, exactly that. Well, you know, I feel weird saying I don't want to do that, so I just <clears throat> do it. I'm like, that's not okay. Your mm-hmm. body belongs to you. And I, again, same thing. I have the same conversations with adult women friends. Mm-hmm. You yeah. don't have to do anything you don't want to do. I think it, what's so bizarre to me too is that is that sex, I think, is really the only partnered thing that we do that we're not expected to communicate about. Like right. if you're building a house with someone and like flinging power tools around and whatever it right. is. You want to know what's happening. You want right. to know what's happening. I already happening. know I'm not building a house with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't really play them. I know how to use power tools for the record. But you know what I'm saying? Nothing it's... more empowering than using a that's power true. saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's our self-care. Ooh, that's my best life. Yeah, right. But yeah, you know, if you're if you're building something with someone, if you're any other partnered actor, you're going to be communicating about it because you don't want to mm-hmm. hurt each other mm-hmm. because exactly. you want to be safe. It's a really good And energy. we don't apply that same standard <clears throat> no. to partnered sex. And you want to be able to enjoy it, right? So you want to be sitting with your partner and say, here's what I like. Here's yeah. what I'm not so into. What about you? Yeah. Um, and in that way, having that conversation helps you meet each other's needs. Or yeah. even in the midst of it, if somebody does something and you're like, oh, it didn't like that. You have to say, didn't like that. You know? Right. That's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, and it does, you know, it does go back to... Um, how are we how are we teaching communication skills to our kids? You know, how are we teaching people to say no and you respect a no? You know, you go to... We've got Easter coming up, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to see their families. But when you go home, you know, if you don't want to give Uncle Kevin a hug, you don't have to give Uncle Kevin a hug. You can say no. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Kevin. Sorry, Kevin. (laughs) 
right? But, it's you know, true. you shake his hand or you say hi and you wave. It's right. nice to see you. It How is... are we teaching our kids that mm-hmm. it's okay to say no and we support you in that? And mm-hmm. and being supported, you know, as a 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 16-year-old is going to take you into your 30s and 40s. And, and that's going to be something that you value. The is... most empowering thing you can say to a child is your body belongs to you, mm-hmm. period, end of story. Whether you're face-to-face with another 5-year-old or a grown-up, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, a girl, a boy, whatever. It doesn't matter right. all across the board. I wish, uh, I bet, how do you get that message out and have it stick? Especially, like, children do what they see. So if their parents or the their models um, are not owning the, the, you know, their ownership of their body isn't mm-hmm. kept sacred, mm-hmm. then what are they learning? And again, I think going back to the Me Too movement is... The Me Too movement is helping to bring these conversations mm-hmm. up. Sure. So, you know, yes, it's been happening forever, and it's kind of like opening that door of like, take a step into what we've known forever, mm-hmm. right? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> walking out of that door is also opportunity for education and opportunity for connection, opportunity for us to break those cycles. So, um, that's one of the things that I feel hopeful about mm-hmm. coming out of all of this is mm-hmm. is that we can have these conversations and start to make change. I. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that in regards to the Me Too movement, um, exactly what you're saying is that I think there's this kind of camp that's hyper-focused on how do we punish when we really should be asking how do we prevent. Mm -hmm. So now that we know this, even Mm -hmm. though some of us have known it for quite some time, now that we kind of as a society know this and are validating it in ways, how do we sort of, how do we not undo it, but how do we you know, not live in this space forever and, and prevent it going forward. So, so can we talk about that for a second? What yeah. are some good preventative measures? And see, this conversation gets me nervous because mm-hmm. I was at a, a get together last night and two things happened. It was a it was a girls' night. Two things happened that I that I took note of in my brain pan. One was about halfway through the, the gathering, the women all started to talk about how you know, screwed up their face was that day or their clothes or their hair or whatever. It's interesting that women will devolve into this, um, you know, this weird self-loathing. Mm-hmm. And then it's it's encouraged by the group because then everyone starts talking about what they hate about themselves. I've not yet once walked into a situation like that where women have said, God, I really love the way my hair looks today. And then have another woman go, yeah, my boobs look really good. Or, you know, my butt looks great or whatever. That just doesn't happen, which is a bummer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, the other thing was one of the women uh, had gone to a um, assault prevention class. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they taught her was, you know, how to walk. I thought, just because I walk a certain way doesn't mean I get to get... I don't know. It was weird to me. I thought, oh, I don't like that. You know, I get that to feel um, to feel your power and to be strong and all mm-hmm. that stuff. But when you start picking apart, like, how somebody walks or what they're wearing or any of that stuff, suddenly it doesn't... It, the onus shifts, and I, I'm uncomfortable right. with yeah. that. So it's like, how do we teach people to not get raped instead of teaching people to not, not rape. to rape? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I think um, I think in general people kind of don't like to be taken out of this place of homeostasis. And what we know for so long is that the conversation has been about women, and this is a women's issue. And um, you know, let's talk about how to keep our girls safe um, because it's 
it's, I think, been the conversation for so long and it's what we know. And to move us out of that and um, expect change, expect a giant cultural change is really scary and it's a big daunting task and it's overwhelming. And the reality of it is it's not gonna happen overnight. Um, it might not even happen in the lifetime, in our lifetime. Um, but our goal, you know, maybe isn't necessarily to move the needle from zero to 100, but maybe let's get it from zero to 20. And if we're all working to move the needle just a little bit, you know, we're chipping away at an ice block and eventually it's all going to fall away. So we all have a responsibility to show up and do just a little bit, do just enough. You know, it's the man who, the guy at the bar who says to his buddy, don't talk to her that way. Um, or it's the woman who sees her friend or maybe a woman she doesn't even know who's too drunk and in a situation and checks in and says, hey, how's it going? Or I'm jumping in an Uber. Do you want to go ahead and ride home with me? It's how do we help make these little tiny changes where we can mm -hmm. in our immediate lives. That's going to make a big difference. Yeah. There's a story about the two girls at the bar and they, um, the, they were watching, they saw a girl on a date with a guy or, well, I guess they, the guy had known, they had known each other for a really long time or whatever. The girl got up to go to the bathroom and the two girls at the bar noticed that he put something in their drink. Mm -hmm. And so then they sprang into action. It turned out he did roofie his friend. Mm -hmm. And uh, he ended up getting arrested. And if those girls hadn't stepped in, you know, mm -hmm. it's... You know, it, you see something, do something. It's on all of us. Sure. Um, to make that shift and change. You make, a, you make a good point. That whole thing about, you know, yes, women, we need to protect our bodies and, and be strong and, and figure out how to navigate this world of predators. And it is a world of predators, unfortunately. I mean, it's... I'm not trying to be negative, but it's just a fact. And uh, but I think to say to the boys, look, guys, women are not things. Mm -hmm. You know, from a young age to explain to boys that that's the case, and then to ask men to rise to the occasion of don't don't assault women, don't be degrading to women, don't. And it's like tied into this whole thing um, of you know. Pornography, like what is it? What is a healthy relationship for humans with pornography? Mm -hmm. And then where does that draw the line? You know, I'm, I'm don't judge people for what is their taste. What I have an issue with, of course, is when whatever it is they're into then starts going to the shadow side mm -hmm. and hurts someone else. Mm -hmm. That's not okay. I remember when uh, I was, gosh. I was probably like nine or something, and I had friends over, and as kids do, we were rifling through my parents' room, they were at work, and I found the joy of sex, and we were like, oh! Now, my, <laughs> my parents had already talked to me about sex, and so, you know, I was I had this awareness of everything, and but it was still looking at naked people, was like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? And uh, we talked about pornography already, but the idea that you know, anything can be bad, anything can be good. I think for some people it's a very, it's a wonderful tool to stimulate their sex lives and, you know, it can be used responsibly. Yeah, so um, one of our colleagues the other day uh, was saying, which I thought was really funny, um, poor pornography, it never asked to be education, only entertainment. <laughs> and, and that's not to say that... Um, that bad things can't happen or that non-consensual sex can't happen um with within the sex industry just just like anywhere else sure. really um but you know if you are already 
an adult, healthy individual who has appropriate boundaries, who understands consent, who understands the difference between fantasy and reality. Um, porn consumption for, for entertainment purposes isn't necessarily always a bad thing, as long as you're making sure that it's ethically sourced and, and produced and all of that yeah. good stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's not a good way for a child to learn about sex because it is a fantasy. It's not, and unfortunately, I think a lot of, I, I saw some study where it said some children is young because of the internet, you know, as young as seven, mm-hmm. six years old that are watching pornography, that's imprinting on them. And guess what, kids? That's not really what it looks like or how it works. You yeah. know, it's like it's it's a, it's a hyper stylized situation. Yeah, and it wasn't designed to be education. But no. the thing about you know about kids and young folks and things like that. When you start to be curious about something, and especially like you said, with the internet, you're going to seek it out. If you're not getting that information from or in a healthy way from folks who you trust, who have good judgment, right. you're it's not like you're just gonna kind of give up and get bored of trying to seek out that information. You're going to try to self-educate. Right. And if you start Googling around, that's what's going to come up and that's what's going to be your educational tool. And that's where we run into issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get very frustrated when I hear like, oh, for I can only use my myself for an example. But when I was growing up, my parents again very open about talking about sex. This is how it works. This is what it means. This is, and they even included non heterosexual relationships in the conversation. They're you know ahead of their time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I graduated high school. Now I'm not saying whether or not if I'd had sex or not would have been good or bad, but I was 18 the first time I had sex. And most of my friends were never got the conversation from their parents. They, you know, barely listened in health ed. There may have been a banana with a condom on it, but I don't even think they did that back then, you know, (laughs) and uh, they may do that now. They may not. But, um, but those kids that didn't get the information started being sexually active at a really young age. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there is a correlation between the, like exactly what you said. Like if you aren't at least giving a basic understanding of what sexuality is and what sex is and what um, all that is, then they're going to find it elsewhere mm-hmm. because biologically we are compulsed to seek that out. We're supposed to make the species keep going, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And our body responds in kind to that biological compulsion. So I think it's so important. Education, 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 <laughs> education. Yeah. I can't say that enough. It's just so important. And I think education, um, again, about, you know, communication and consent um, in all areas of our life, right? So we can also not consent to a conversation. Um, We cannot consent to um, wanting to do things like, you know, I don't feel like baking cookies. You know, you're not going to push somebody to continue, you know, like, you're going to make these I'm not friends with that person anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I want the cookies. Right, but it's also like, how are we, it's, it's, these kinds of things are things that we have to learn and develop over time. Um, And it's a skill that we have to learn and develop just like we learn how to be social, just like we learn how to nourish ourselves, just like we learn hygiene. Um, And so it's not... Well, I think there's a lot of fear about what sexual assault is and what it means. Um, And I think what's really important for us to remember is that sex and sexual assault are not the same thing. (laughs) Um, So consensual sex and sexual violence, uh, it's the same avenue, but they are two very different things. Um, And so to just kind of continue to reinforce that idea, um, 
that fact that sexual violence is not actually about sex. It's about power and control. Um, and sex is about connection, communication, pleasure, um, and relationship. Sure. Um, and sex can mean a lot of different things to different people, but consensual sex is, you know, a choice that two people are making to engage in. Sexual violence is a non-consensual act. Yeah. Um, and so I think there can be a lot of fear when we talk about sexual violence and sex without that understanding. Yeah. Um, and I think that we're not an, actually talking about the same thing. It's an important part of sex education is to understand that sexual assault occurs and is, you know, that's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're a parent that believes you're school shouldn't be educating the children in in uh this stuff then please i encourage you to talk to your kids yourself because they're gonna find out and they're gonna find out in ways that you probably didn't anticipate i get very impassioned about yeah, this yeah topic, yeah absolutely you know? <laughs> so, yeah oh well, i mean so yeah, do we yeah. you know, <laughs> obviously yeah. um there's a lot in what you just said um i think it can I think it's you know we're asking people to make a big shift in the way that they think and we're asking parents to change the way that they have these kinds of conversations with their kids mm-hmm. and we're hopeful um, that the more we talk about it and the more education that we can offer to people mm-hmm. um, the more we're gonna see that reflected in in future generations and hey let's go to advertising and say let's stop making women into rugs or you know bound and gagged in your ad campaigns <clears throat> or your, you know scare tactics just weird yeah. like if you start really looking at advertising oh my god mm-hmm. the stuff they use to sell product is mm-hmm. it's not it's if for somebody that doesn't understand the difference, I always go back to when I was a little girl, my parents wouldn't let me watch All in the Family because they felt like as a child, I wouldn't understand the irony of the character of Archie Bunker. And instead, I would somehow absorb his racism and his anti-Semitism <clears throat> and his, you know, like all this stuff because I wouldn't, I didn't have the skills as a young person to watch a show like that and see where Norman Lear was going with his writing where he was shining a light. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm saying. It's like, yes, this stuff is pervasive. And as adults, we can see it and, and say, oh, okay, I know what that means right. and take it on or not take it on. But little kids can't mm-hmm. and they're seeing it constantly. And it becomes kind of like an implicit mm. belief system that just lives inside of us that maybe we're not necessarily aware of. Mm-hmm. So making these conversations explicit and saying, you yeah. know, directly, you know, you're talking about these cartoons and it's like that's an opportunity for your parents to say to you Mm -hmm. hey this kind of belief system we don't align with that and here's how we feel instead right and here's what it means to be compassionate and here's how you exist in the world in that way and modeling that for our kids um, modeling it for our friends modeling it for our community yeah it takes a lot of courage and a lot of bravery to be willing to do that and it's super important that we do and it's hard to unpack because when you look at you know i like the human form you know and so if i'm looking at something that is some one person might consider pornography i consider it art or whatever mm-hmm. there's all there's a lot of gray yeah. within the context of all of this and i know we're kind of going off the subject but all this stuff is fascinating to me i think too that i mean like sex negativity in general which is 
also pervasive um, in our society in general, right? But it's prime breeding ground for all of this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's the perfect conditions because Mm -hmm. really what your sex negativity, I think at its core is talking about or suggesting that people's bodies don't belong to them. So Mm -hmm. homophobia, for example, Mm -hmm. right? If I'm somebody who is a homophobic individual, I am saying that individual's body doesn't belong to them. What they do with their body is my business and I get to have ownership over that in some way. And because all of that permeates everything that we do so much, I think that that has so much to do with bodily autonomy and who gets to do what to whom and all of that type of stuff. So Politics is a huge yeah, example of that. Yeah, and I think it's really hard for um, when we're talking about teaching kids and modeling for kids and, and things <clears throat> like that, the parents of kids who maybe have these certain beliefs or don't want to talk explicitly with their kids about sex or do have beliefs that are rooted in sex negativity and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's really hard for, for those folks to step out of that and... Um, teach their kids, you know, your body belongs to you and things like that. But that individual, their body, I get to say what they do with that body, mm-hmm. which is very confusing and, and going to get us nowhere really fast. So when you're talking about like ending sexual violence, really, and having conversations, really, of course, consent and education is important, but we also have all of these other ideologies mm-hmm. that are so ingrained and yeah. tackling those as well is essential to, to ending this issue. Yeah. So that's something that's really big too, I think. And it's a breeding ground really for shame. Yeah. Um, shame if we too. feel, if we, you know, develop in the, in, we develop in this culture in which we feel shame about our bodies or what we can or cannot do with our bodies. Um, that's going to inform, you know, the way that we respond later on in life to different circumstances. So our survival responses are, you know, body oriented. It's, our body responds to threat um, in whatever way it's going to, in whatever way our body believes it's going to help us survive. Our bodies are incredibly intelligent. And, um, you know, I think it's really important that we learn to be grateful for the ways that our body helps to keep us alive and safe. Um, Part of that, though, is our responses to threat are informed by habits and behaviors that we develop early on. So we have a habit response. um, And a habit response looks like, you know, not wanting to make waves or enduring an uncomfortable hug with someone who, you know, you you might not want to because it's polite and it's what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so looking at how we shift away from this like so um jim hopper who's a researcher who's up in boston is um i would consider a mentor of mine and he talks about the fear habit paradox and how the body might feel like oh my god this is not safe i have to get out of here this is not good but our habits and reflexes are and in this situation here's how i know to respond or here's how i've been taught to respond Mm -hmm. and so how do we start to uncouple those things and start to listen to the, our our cues and listen to our intuition and say, actually, I'm going to listen to my intuition here and I'm going to step away. Or I'm going to say thanks, but no thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, or whatever it is, depending on the situation. Um, and the more we can learn to attune to what we're feeling inside of our bodies, um, I think the better off we're going to be and the more connected we're going to be. Um, the more grounded we're going to be inside of ourselves, which is going to make it possible for us to be present and supportive of other people in our lives. And to step up and say, you know, 
I was watching Sex in the City the other day, and there's that episode where they're sitting, <laughs> looking at magazines, and Charlotte's like, I hate my legs, and Carrie's like, oh, I hate my it's this. It's that thing and, I was talking about. Right. <laughs> and they, they all turn to Samantha, and she goes, I don't hate anything about my body. I love my body. And it's like, how do we... How do we move out of this place of body shame, like Sarah was talking about it, into this place of yeah. this is my body and this is where I live, and it's not separate from who I am. It is part of who I am. Well, I would always and I argue love and that, grateful for it. Yeah, that, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. No, no. I argue that all the time that the way we treat others is directly a result of how we feel about ourselves. If I have an issue with my body, then the first thing I'm going to notice about someone else is their whatever thing, you know. <laughs> if I'm buttoned down in my regular life, then I might be judgmental of somebody who's like, woohoo, life is grand. Or, and you just never know what it, it surprises you, mm-hmm. you know, how people react because whatever's going on inside their brain, mm-hmm. it's on them. Mm-hmm. I have a, a friend who once said to me, what other people think of you is none of your goddamn business. And <laughs> that stuck with me. And it's like, yes, that is such a liberating thought. Mm-hmm. And the other thing you were saying too, is if your body says, this is not okay, that it's okay for it to not be okay. Mm-hmm. You fuck politeness, as my favorite murder podcast says. <laughs> <laughs> right. I love that podcast. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's you don't you are not there to make someone else feel good about them doing something crappy to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we actually have a curriculum, uh, the Be Safe at Last curriculum, which goes into the schools um, and teaches about. Um, healthy relationships and safe and unsafe touches and how to say no. Mm-hmm. Um, and that program uh, just, you know, is available and accessible to schools in Tennessee. And it helps to teach these kids, like, this is my body, it belongs to me, and I can say no. Yes. And here's what it looks like to say no. You know, and we, we get the kids up and we get them to, you know, say no and sing songs and do the thing. And it's <laughs> That's great. great. It's great. And yeah. the more we make that part of their everyday vocabulary, you know, someone said to me once, you can't really say yes unless you also can say no. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just acquiescing and letting things slide, right? But what is it that you're choosing and being intentional about inviting into your life? Um Yeah. It's an interesting conversation. It's an interesting thing to think it about. It is. It's and, and how do we shift the culture? We are so complicated, and you know we have tied into knots over this. And um, I think, unfortunately, in my lifetime, in our <coughs> lifetime, we may not see where we want it to go yet. But I'd like to think that eventually we'll get there. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't really know how. <laughs> well, and I don't <laughs> know that I'm talking. Us, I don't know that any of us really know all the answers. No, and that's okay. Sure. And we're we're all and we're all doing the best we can, and we all have a different role in this. Mm-hmm. And and my role is to do what I do, and Sarah's role is to do what she does, and your role is to do what you do, and all of those things are important. And together, mm-hmm. it's going to move us in the direction of making change. Yeah. And so you know, that just sounds cheesy, but it's part of this like. We have to trust the process. And in yoga, um, you know, there's this concept of never give up, always let go. So you're always pushing forward, always doing your best, always trying to make change, always trying to move forward, and always letting go of the outcome. And knowing that your work and your process and your journey and everything that you do and say in an effort to do more good is enough. And even if the outcome isn't what you want, it's still helping to shift us in the direction of change. It's so beautiful. how do we keep that yeah. you know, concept alive within us where we're letting go of the outcome because 
this is a hard conversation to have and, and people aren't always going to be open to it and we have to continue to talk about it anyway. Right. Um, and I think you, you nailed it when you said, you know, if you're out with your buddies and you see something inappropriate, say, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. And and it's okay to say that's not okay. And, and as women, you know, that we are in it together. I love it that there's now in a lot of the bars I've been in, there's um, uh, that thing, the bartender code. Mm-hmm. Like if you come up and you ordered this particular drink that doesn't exist on the menu, you know, and you say this, it means I'm feeling uncomfortable about the patron in the bar. If you say this, it means call me a cab. If you say this, it means I'm in danger. Mm-hmm. I think that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that that is out there and I, I encourage bar owners to keep that going let that yeah. be a network of, of survival skill um, we also at SAC have a um, in, in partnership with the Tennessee Coalition and a couple other organizations we have a safe bar program where bars actually in Nashville um, can get trained um, as a safe bar and you get a decal and a certificate and your staff will be trained how to intervene um in the event that you know something goes down something fishy is up um so we encourage any bars around town who are interested in getting more training for their staff to reach out to the center and we can provide that training for them and never leave your drink unattended Mm -hmm. i cannot stress that enough having been roofied myself but luckily was taken out of the situation before something bad Yeah. yeah and other friends i mean I probably have six friends I can name right now that have mm-hmm. been roofied. It mm-hmm. is a real thing. Yeah. It happens. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, as far as self-preservation goes, never leave your drink unattended. Mm-hmm. Um, ladies, please tell everyone how they might find you here in Nashville. An- so the Sexual Assault Center, we're located in um, Metro Center. Uh, you can look on our website, sacenter.org. Um Give us a call. We provide counseling and advocacy services, training and education, prevention in the community. Um, anybody is welcome to come get services. We have we take insurance. We have sliding uh, sliding scale self pay. We also have grants for people who you know maybe feel like currently they can't afford it, or there's other circumstances that are preventing them from reaching out. Um, we're available to you. We also have um, Hispanic services. So for those of you who are Spanish-speaking and uh, wanting a counselor who um, is culturally aware, we have that available to you. Um, then there's, uh, is there an 800 number that is a good number for people to call? Yes. I'm sure there is. There is. No, it's okay. As you're looking it up, and I'm going to put everything on my Hey Human podcast links page as yeah, well. Yeah, we'll send you the... some information so all Great. of that can be there. Perfect. Mm-hmm. And also, just really quick, I want to touch on things like... Um, you know, I see on Amazon and such people sell uh, like uh, protective, uh, what do you call it, like anti-assault kits, like whistles and, and, mm-hmm. and bear spray or whatever it is. Is that stuff, do you feel that that stuff is a valuable tool to have? Does it make a difference or does it actually make the aggressor more aggressive? And what is your opinion? I know it's a personal mm-hmm. opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, whatever makes you feel safe. Yeah. If, if it's a comfort, then sure. Um, I would say like the little, um, you know, a, a whistle or something like that. Like sure. That's not something that would be used against you. I have personal feelings. And again, can't speak for everyone. Cameron might have a different opinion. Um, individuals carrying knives. You do not have knife training skills. I think is probably not the best idea. If you're wanting to carry something to feel a little bit more protected, um, just in case an attacker does have, Mm-hmm. you know 
sure. uh, knife skills and can and can take that and use that against you. I do think though that kind of the advent maybe of those kits gets into a little bit of reinforcing this idea that most people who offend are strangers who like jump out of the bushes and with a mask not. and things like that. And it's right. certainly not like Mm-mm. that. Yeah. So statistically, you're more likely to be assaulted by someone you know. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, majority of people are uh, sexually assaulted by somebody that they know. Um, this idea of stranger danger is a little bit outdated. Yeah. Um, and you know the the conversation we should be having with our kids is is anybody who makes you feel uncomfortable or touches your body in a way that feels unsafe you tell somebody and if they don't listen you tell somebody else and if they don't listen you tell somebody else and you keep telling until somebody believes and gets you the help that you need um and gets you into a safe situation but yes um quite frequently Sexual assaults are perpetrated by people that we know and like who are close to us. The guy at the bar, the the roofie situation, mm-hmm. they'd known each other for like a year and a half or something. Mm-hmm. She considered him a really good yeah. friend. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, I mean, that's kind of, that's the point, right? Is that oftentimes when we get to know somebody, when we trust that person, we're letting our guard down. We're not carrying our little like stabby cat things around. Um, stabby with, cat things. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I don't know what yes. that is. I, I just it's, picture like, like put, they're like um, they're brass like, knuckles, like, but yeah. they look like cats. Yeah. yeah, they have like these cat ears for like <laughs> eyes. Stab. I just like... <laughs> um, but yeah, so you're not, you know, you're not doing all of that stuff when you're with a group of friends or an individual who you trust, who you sure. know, you're more vulnerable because your guard is down. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a lot more difficult to assault somebody if you think about kind of being in the mind of somebody who offends or who is a perpetrator of finding somebody walking down a dark alley or something like that because for all you know that person could be the person here attacking they could be armed they could be very well versed in self-defense they could scream you don't know who else is around Mm -hmm. um it is much much more risky for somebody who's an offender to offend that way than Mm -hmm. somebody who is you know, hey, I've known this person for a little while, you know, sure. this individual is really intoxicated. This is kind of, this is maybe a good time to take advantage, things like that, yeah, right? Um, sure. Waiting around for, for an opportunity and when somebody has their guard down is going to be a lot more effective. Mm-hmm. And it's also one of, one of, you know, that dynamic makes it a lot harder for people to come forward and say, mm-hmm. this sure. happened. Right. Um, because, you know, when you're, when you're friends with people and you have, I mean, you, nobody wants to really rock the boat and come forward and say, you know, I was sexually assaulted by so-and-so, you know, there's this feeling of shame and are people going to believe me or are people going to take his side um, or her side? Well, if you've developed a relationship with someone, then you start going, well, did I do do something? Did I come on to them some way or did Mm -hmm. I show them I was interested and I didn't mean to or all that that conversation? That gives us, mentally, that gives us control. Right. If I can find a way to make it my fault, then I can prevent it from happening again. Mm. Um, giving myself control back by saying I must have done something, and therefore this is why it happened. I will change it going forward, and now this will never happen to me again. Um, and the reality is, is it's if you're sexually assaulted, it's not your fault. Right. Bottom line, no questions asked. Um, and you know, at the center, we believe you. And our counselors believe you and our advocates believe you. And we are a community of people who are there to help you um, recover and regain that true control back in your life. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the, those interpersonal dynamics make it a lot harder for people to come forward, which is 
unfortunate and also one of the reasons why I think it happens so frequently. Yeah, and oftentimes people care about their offender mm-hmm. too, right? Um, be afraid of them or care for them. Be afraid, mm-hmm. like Cameron was saying, of the social ramifications, mm-hmm. what that is going to mean, dividing a friend group maybe, or a family for mm-hmm. that matter, yeah. if it's somebody who's part of your extended family. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just so much that goes Uncle Kevin. into it. Uncle Kevin. <laughs> Poor Uncle Kevin, wherever you are. <laughs> I don't actually have an Uncle Kevin. <laughs> you find the number? Sure did. Um, also, in, in terms of, of finding us and all of the things that we do, um, if you are not needing services but wanting to get involved. Yeah. Um, volunteer or something. Yes, we yeah. have two really great um, direct service volunteer opportunities. So if you're interested in being a, community, a community-based advocate, I talked about the program a little bit earlier. Um, our community advocates who are volunteers from the community who show up to support individuals who are receiving a forensic exam. Um, and also we are currently actively recruiting for volunteers on our crisis hotline. The number for which is (laughs) 1-800-879-1999. Um, and I'll put that also on the website, humanpodcast.com. So volunteer staffed, um, obviously crisis hotline open 24 Mm seven and also stay tuned for information about our safe clinic, which Mm -hmm. will be opening in just a couple of months. Um, So SAC is taking on a a huge undertaking right now. We have been under construction since October. We are currently building a facility to offer forensic exams to survivors of sexual assaults um, in a non-hospital setting. So we are going to have a staffed clinic on site where folks can come and receive a forensic exam, AKA rape kit, um, not in the emergency room, which will be really, really great. And we're super excited about That's that. Wonderful. So Yay. yeah, we will have, I think, official ribbon cutting uh, sometime mid-May and probably be open um, for, for business a few weeks after that. So again, that will be another 24-7 facility. That's and, fantastic. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. look out for more information. Yay. Mm-hmm. Ladies. Cameron, Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you for having yeah, us. Yeah, thank this you. Week. Yeah, I really appreciate we your time. We did. <laughs> and I encourage listeners also, you know, I mean, I was talking earlier about the the, the classes, but I've taken, you know, um, what do you call it? Self, Self-defense. Self-defense courses. Um, <laughs> karate chop in there. <laughs> there was no karate chopping in that class, if I remember correctly. But, you know, I, I recommend it. It's just a great empowering experience. Um, but as these ladies have said, if something happens to you, you know, if if you need help, please get it. Please seek it if you can. And uh, it's not your fault. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, ladies. Thank, yeah, you. thank you. Bye, everybody.